It's a beautiful thing when families gather to worship. One of the things I was just praising God for in the last song was just before we drove back from Alabama yet on last Sunday, we were worshiping with our oldest and our youngest son, their wives, children. It's a beautiful thing to worship together. We're in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. I want to speak to you about the love of God. It's, an, it's not an easy thing to get your hands on, to get a hold of, but once you get a hold of the love of God, the love of God will hold you. And some of you need to be held. God doesn't, doesn't just love the attractive. A per, how a person looks on the outside doesn't matter to God. A person's race, whether they're black or white, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter to God. A person's gender, whether they are male or female or choose to identify, however, doesn't really matter to God's love. The color of a person's skin doesn't matter to God. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. The language they speak, the country they come from. God loves all people. The Bible teaches us, and we'll see this morning, that God himself is love. And you need to spend some time this spring, this summer, getting to know the love of God, savoring the precious love of God, basking in the unfathomable love of God. And the reason why, this is my thesis for the morning, is we need to know and rely on the love of God is that we will face difficult circumstances. And there will be times in our life where we may not feel the love of God. So here's what I want you to know. We measure God's love based on who he is, how he's revealed himself to us, and upon what he has done, not upon our feelings or our circumstances. In a postmodern world that we live in, we tend to evaluate reality based on our feelings or our circumstances. If you say that God only loves you when life is going well, when there's money in the bank, <laughs> when the kids are getting straight A's, when everybody's healthy in your family, you know, good luck with that. When the right political party's in office, if you were to say that God loves you when everything is right in the world, you're in a hopeless situation. Or if you're waiting for all the circumstances in your life to be perfect. But God loves you when life is hard and when life is easy. Now, how many of you all did not like to take tests when you're in school? How many of you love to take a test? Wow, like a couple of you actually raised your hands. I suppose many of us don't like to take tests because we feel unprepared, right? I had a teacher in grade school. He loved to give pop, pop quizzes. She would say stuff like, put everything away. We're going to have a pop quiz. And the whole class groaned because we weren't prepared, right? A young man did poorly on an exam. His dad asked him, why did you do so poorly on the exam? The young man said, absence. The father said, you were absent on the day of the exam? He said, no, the boy that knows all the answers was absent. He sits beside him. God will certainly allow tests and trials to come into the believer's life. Tests in school are written by teachers to see if a student has assimilated the material, whether they've accumulated the knowledge, or if there's weak areas in the life the student needs to improve on. The section in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and following has a number of questions. Paul has been teaching for eight chapters. We are smack dab in the middle of the book of Romans. 
And Paul decides to give the church at Rome a midterm exam. Now, I'm not going to grade you on this, okay? But there's a number of questions he's asking to kind of drive home the point. Paul loves to ask question after question. His style is called a diatribe, question and answer. It's the Socratic method. He's trying to see whether the student has mastered the content. So let's pick it up now in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and following, your mobile device or open Bible. Let's look together what it says. What then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? I'm going to pick up five of these questions. And the first one occurs in verse 31. I call it the question of reaction. What shall we say in response to all of this? What is your response to these truths you've been hearing? His question evokes within us another question. What things, Paul, are you talking about? Is Paul backing up to chapter 1 when he declared that Gentiles and Jews were all under the judgment of God, but God demonstrated his love for us when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? The wrath of God has been eclipsed by the grace of God? Is Paul referring here to chapter 8 when he said, There is now no condemnation. This is some good news. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we are the adopted children of God. God has not given us a spirit of slavery, but God has given us a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, that we have a new power to live a new life in the Holy Spirit? Or is Paul referring to the immediate context of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30? That God causes all things, all things are not good, but God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You have a destiny and you have a destination. My friend Jim Wilson is a pilot who flies for American Airlines. And before they board, before you board, they develop a flight plan. Let's say the flight is headed out of Baltimore to go to Birmingham, a flight I have taken. Now, you have some choices to make concerning the flight. You can you can buy a ticket, you can arrive at the gate on time, you can choose your seat on the plane, you can elect to either eat the pretzels or not, to take the soda or not, you can make some choices in regards to whether you fall asleep on the plane or read a book, but you cannot change the destination, that once you board the plane, you are destined to arrive in Birmingham, right? because it's leaving from Baltimore and it's going to Birmingham. The destination has been set in advance. So when a believer becomes a believer, 
they have a destination, and that destination is heaven. God has destined us. All those whom God foreknew are predestined, and all those who are predestined are called, and all those who are called are justified, and all those who are justified are glorified. And Paul is saying, what shall we say to these things? That in eternity past, God set his love on you. Long before you were ever thinking about God, God was thinking about you. Long before you ever loved God, God loved you. Long before you ever chose God, God chose you. In eternity past, God set a destination for us. Then in time, God called us. There's an internal, an internal illumination that God sends to awaken us to the truth. God called us out of darkness into his light. God called us into a relationship to himself. God called the apostle Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. God, the called are the people who love God. How would we know that we are chosen? Some people struggle with these great doctrines of being chosen, being predestined. Paul wrote, we know that God has chosen you because the gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power and with deep conviction. You see, we were called to a relationship with God. And those that are called are justified. So God sits as the judge of all mankind, and he knows all we have done. He hears the evidence, he listens to the witnesses, and there at the courtroom we, he's asked, we're asked, how do you plead? And the only reply we could give would be guilty. But then the advocate, Jesus Christ himself, our defense attorney, steps up and says, Your Honor, Father, I paid their penalty. I took their place. And the judge bangs the gavel and declares us justified. There's a place in California that's notorious for speeding. It's on the California Highway. And the California Highway Patrol waits for speeders. And a woman was in her 20s on a nice California afternoon speeding along the highway. And a patrolman was waiting for her. She saw the lights in a rearview mirror. And um, the practice in that part of California is to take the person who's been speeding directly to the courtroom. How would you like that? Caught speeding, go directly to the court. And she's sitting in this room with all these people who have been speeding. And the judge, who she vaguely familiar seemed familiar to her, said, how do you plead, innocent or guilty? She said, guilty, Your Honor. Then he said, I impose upon you the stiffest of all penalties, a $100 fine and the charge for speeding. And then he came out from behind his rostrum and took off his robe and he said, I pay her penalty. You see, the man behind the bench was her father and her father paid her penalty. How would you like it to know that all that you deserve to be punished for has been paid for by Jesus Christ? That we have been justified just as if we have never sinned. What shall we say to all these things? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You loved me when I deserved not to be loved and I could not have earned this love. These truths ought to evoke within us the deepest gratitude and humility.
It's the question of reaction. What shall we say to all these things? What's your response to the truth that you hear? Now, what's the point? How you and I respond to spiritual truth really matters. God obviously here is hoping for a positive response. J.I. Packer says, whenever we embark on any study in God's book, we need to ask, what is my ultimate objective in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do with my knowledge of God once we get it? For if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it will go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. For the greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us. This is not any book. This is the Word of God. And God is speaking to us about our position. And what He's saying to us is that we have been justified and one day we will be glorified. Which takes us to the second question found in verse 31. It says, If God is for us, who can be against us? I call this the question of protection. If God is for us, who can be against us? The question is not who could be against us, but the answer would be no one that really matters. You see, if we were to ask the question who is against us, we could say disease is against us, COVID, cancer is against us, inflation Rising prices, decreasing value is against us. Terrorists wrecking havoc on the world are against us. But God is for us. Your parents may have forgotten you. Your teachers may have neglected you. Your siblings may have fought with you. That's what siblings do, I suppose. They fight with one another. But your God is for you, not maybe for you, not has been for you, not was for you, not would be for you. He is for you today at this very hour, at this minute. God is for you. Now, my wife, Debbie, is a very avid sports fan. And the thing that she loves to do more than anything is to go to one of our kids' soccer games. But now that our kids have all moved away and no one's living closer than 700 miles, we have to travel to places like Franklin, Tennessee to see a soccer game. And we went down to see one of Josh. Josh is coaching some teams. And we went to the sidelines and watched his team play. And Debbie is a very avid fan. You know Debbie's in the stands when she's there because she's cheering with all her might for these little guys, nine-year-olds, running around the field. And I think about this, about how God is so for us. You turn to the sidelines, and that's God who's cheering for you. You look past the finish line, and that's God who's applauding you. You listen for him in the bleachers. That's God shouting your name. You know, God is for you. If God had a calendar, he would circle your birthday. If God drove a car, your name would be on the bumper sticker. If there's a tree in heaven, he would carve your name in it. If God had a tattoo, he would put your name on that tattoo. You see, God is for you. Knowing that it doesn't matter who's against us, 
if the most powerful, almighty God is for his people, what really matters is that God is for us. Can death harm us now? Can disease rob us of life? Can our purpose be taken from us? It's a question of protection, that God is for us. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Do you know that the God of heaven is for you? Now, plenty of people in the Bible didn't think that God was for them. Job didn't think that God was for him. Job suffered many losses. And he said, God, why do you hide your face? Why do you regard me as your enemy? Does it seem to you in this season of your life as if God has hidden his face from you? Jeremiah didn't think that God was for him. When Jeremiah's city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonians, Jeremiah in Lamentations said, The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up all of Israel. The patriarch Jacob didn't feel God was for him. He said, All things seem against me. It seemed to him as if God had turned against him. One of the songs we love to sing here is, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who I am. I am who I say I am. You see, God is not against his people. God is for them. Which takes us to the third question, the question of provision. Look at verse 32. It says, who, He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously Give us all things. Now think about it. If God did not spare his son, if God the Father allowed God the Son to go to the cross to pay the infinite price, if the innocent one went to pay for the guilty one's sin, if him who was just died for the unjust sin, if he did that for us, if God did the greater thing, then God, won't he do the lesser thing of taking care of his people? Won't he graciously give us all things? You see, it's the argument of a fortiori, that it's arguing from greater to lesser. If you were to buy a pickup truck, do you think the dealer might throw in a set of floor mats? If you went to a nice place to buy a pair of glasses or sunglasses, do you think they might give you a case to, take, to put those glasses into? If you went to a diamond store and you bought a diamond, you think it's likely that they might give you a box to put it into? What I'm trying to say is, if God did the greater thing for us, that is the cross, don't you think he would do the lesser thing of graciously providing for his people what they need? You see, my God will provide our needs according to what we need, according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God takes care of his people. So the question is, what is it that you need? What is it that your soul longs for? Do you long for strength in the midst of a trial? Do you long for wisdom to know a decision you need to make? You see, God graciously provides for his people. And that's what he's saying in verse 32. Which brings us to the fourth question, the question of opposition. Look with me at verse 33. 
And we'll put these two together. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God who's also interceding for us. You see, if the decision has been made in the highest court, then what happens in the lower courts doesn't really seem to matter. If in the lower courts they found a person guilty, but then in the highest court they were found innocent, the charge of the lower court can't stick. The question here is, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You in your lifetime perhaps have been maligned both privately and publicly. You've had people take their shots at you. You've had critics who swore they knew your heart. You have been criticized. He's saying, what difference does it make, these charges that are brought against us? If God has justified us, he's declared us not guilty, then it really doesn't matter what these lesser charges are. Who will bring charges against God's elect? We read in Revelation that the accuser of the brothers accuses us both day and night. He accused Job of fearing God because of what God gave him. The accuser said, does Job fear God for nothing? You put a hedge around him, take the hedge away, and he will curse you to his face. So what he's saying is that in this world, there will be charges brought against a believer. You yourself will have sometimes self-condemning thoughts. But it's God who justifies us. You see, he says, remember this, when you come under accusation, it was Christ who died. Greater love hath no man than this, than he who would lay down his life for his friends. It is Christ who died for those sins of yours. It was Christ who's been raised to the right hand of God. It's Christ who's been risen from the dead. You see, when he was raised back from the dead, it was as if the Father approved of the work that Jesus had done. He was vindicated. He was saying that it is sufficient, that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient for our sins. It is approved of. The justice of God has been satisfied. It is Christ who died for us. It is Christ who's been risen from the grave. It's Christ who is at the right hand of God. That's the highest position of authority and power. It is Christ who is interceding for us. Sometime in your life, you'll have somebody who will say to you, you've been on my mind all week long. I've been thinking of you, and I've been praying for you. I've been just lifting you up before the Father in heaven. How does that make you feel to know that someone has been thinking of you and praying for you? You know what Jesus Christ is doing for his church right now? He is interceding on our behalf. The scripture says he's able to save us to the uttermost because he lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ is praying for us. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Listen to this from John chapter 17, 
of Jesus' intercessory prayer. I am coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the, wor and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus Christ is praying for your protection from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying over you that you might become sanctified, progressively more and more like him. In justification, God demonstrated his justice by satisfying his justice, by paying our penalty for our sin. In sanctification, we are progressively becoming more and more like Jesus as the Spirit of God works in us. In glorification, the very uh, essence of sin has been removed from us. So what he's saying is that Christ is interceding for us, which takes us to the fifth and the final question of the text. And here it is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anything in this world, in this life, that will separate us from the love of Christ? You know, friendships sometimes are separated. We have a neighbor who's lived beside us for 35 years, and she's moving away. And that relationship will go through a new phase now of living in two different parts. We've awakened each day in each other's presence. You know, our driveways abut one another, but she's moving away. So the question here is, shall anything separate us from the love of Christ? Is there any hardship that we can go through that will separate us from the love of God? And now what Paul does is he lists seven different things that could potentially separate us from the love of God. Shall our troubles separate us from the love of God? It's like saying that the love of God is like a mighty river. Is there ever a stone in the river, a, a rock in the river, that would block the flow of God's love into the life of the believer? Shall a trouble that we're going through separate us from the love of God? Paul himself had experienced many troubles. He had been arrested. He had been thrown into prison. He'd been put into stocks. He'd had people turn against him. He had maladies and afflictions. Shall any trouble that a believer goes through separate them from the love of God? How about hardships? Now, the word there, we get the word stenosis, pressures, hardships that we go through. Is there any pressure that should separate us from the love of God? How about persecution, hostility, people turning against us? How about famine or nakedness or danger or sword? How about unexpected medical bills? How about an emergency surgery? How about 
a divorce? How about the hardest things that can happen to us in life? Is there anything in this life that can separate us from the love of God? That's the question he's asking. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day, all day long. He's quoting from Psalm 44. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying that hardships have come upon believers all through the centuries. Jesus said that in this world, you're going to face tribulation. Peter said, don't be surprised when these trials come, you know, cruising into your life. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. But here's his answer. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We, we come up against life and these hardships and difficulties in life, and we persevere through them, relying upon the grace of God. God enables his people to go through the most difficult times. You see, when the waters come against us, we do not drown. And when we pass through the rivers, they do not overwhelm us. And when we're put into the fire, we are not burned up. You see, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What enables us to persevere through the hardness of life is the fact that God loves us. His love for us is inseparable. His love for us is triumphant. His love for us is permanent. His love for us gives us comfort that God loves us. God has not withdrawn his love from us in the hard times. God shows his love to us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You see, if a person is a warrior, when they go into battle, they conquer. But a person who's more than a conqueror knows that this test I'm facing, that Christ himself has won the victory. He has won the victory over sin and over death, and I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me. You see, brothers and sisters, we have the power in the Holy Spirit to conquer whatever comes at us in this life. We are more than conquerors because of his love for us. And now Paul, Paul begins to think about everything there is that could possibly separate us from the love of God. Look at verse 38. For I am convinced, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, there is nothing in this life None of the troubles, none of the hardships, none of the persecutions, none of the setbacks, none of the disappointments, none of the depression, none of that. Nothing shall separate me from the love of God in life. And then in death, will not separate me from the love of God. Will death separate me from God? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you also may be. Death will not separate the believer from Christ and his love. How about, how about angels or demons, these fallen angels that would seek to torment us and pester us? Will they separate us from the love of God? How about the things we worry about in the present? How about our fears in the present time, the worries for the future? 
Will they separate us from the love of God? How about any powers that are arrayed against us? How about heights or depths? Heights refer to that which is above the horizon. Depths refer to that which is the lowest place. Can the heights and depths separate us from the love of God? Oh, Paul is praying. He's saying, brothers and sisters, I'm praying that you might know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. You see, the love of God is wide enough to embrace all of humanity. And the love of God is high enough to reach up to the heavens. And the love of God is deep enough to reach to the lowest place. You see, the love of God <laughs> that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, we will never be separated from. And he wants us to know this love. So here's the bottom line. God always loves us, but we don't always experience God's love. We don't always feel God's love. Jude 24 says, keep yourselves in the love of God, in a place where you can experience the love of God. You know, I could on a sunny day feel the warmth of the sun, but I could also hold up an umbrella to block the sun's rays. I could put up an umbrella of doubt, of sin, of jealousy, of envy, of comparison. Any of these things is sufficient to block the experience of God's love. So let me ask you this question. How convinced are you that God loves you? Is there anything in this life that can keep you from the love of God? Some people would say, well, if I were to lose a child, if that were to happen, I never could trust God. God forbid it should happen. But people say, if I were to lose a child, I could never trust God again. If I go through an accident, or if my spouse walks out, or if I lose my business, or I go through a debilitating disease, or if I hear a clever argument from an unbeliever, any of these things could stop me from loving God. You know, while these things may stop you from loving God, God will never stop loving you. The love of God <laughs> is the most powerful thing in all the universe, and God has set his love upon you. Some of you here are a little bit angry because God took something from you that you didn't want him to take. A little girl, she went to the dime store, and she bought this necklace at the dime store. She saved up her allowance. She saved up her birthday money. And she went and bought this little necklace. And she wore it every day. She even wore it to sleep at night. And at night, her daddy would tuck her into the bed and said, Honey, you know that daddy loves you? She said, Sure, daddy. I know you love me. He said, Would you give me the necklace? She said, No, dad. You can't have the necklace. The necklace belongs to me. So the next night, the father came and said, Honey, you know that I love you. She says, Sure, dad. I know you love me. Well, honey, do you love me enough to give me the necklace? She said, no, Dad, the necklace belongs to me. And this went on for a long time. One night he walked in and she, he knew he, she knew what he was going to ask. And she said, Daddy, I'll give you my favorite doll. You know, negotiate this thing out. That's not the necklace, but I'll give you my doll. He said, no, no, I want the necklace. So on one night, the Daddy walked into the bedroom. 
and she had her necklace in her hand. And with tears streaming down her face, she said, Daddy, here's the necklace. And the father took the necklace with one hand, and in his other hand he had a velvet pouch. And he handed it to her and said, Honey, this is what I wanted to give you, a real pearl necklace. You see, God was trying to replace the trinket with the treasure. And so many times in life, what happens to us is we're holding so fast to the trinket that we can't receive the treasure. The treasure is God's love for you. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the very children of God. God loves you enough to bear a curse for you, for cursed is him who is on the tree. God loves you enough to rise again from the dead, to give you a new life that is in Christ. God loves you enough to intercede on your behalf. But most importantly, God loves you. God really, really loves you. A man was asked, how much does God love you? And he stretched out his arms this wide and said, he loved me this much to go to a cross. So if you're not feeling the love of God, if you have circumstances in your life that seem to be blocking the love of God, you have to know deep in your heart that God truly loves you. God hasn't changed his mind. God loves you. God loves you with a reckless kind of love. God loves you with a permanent kind of love. Nothing is ever going to take the love of God away from you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as we hear this amazing passage of Scripture, which has given to Christians over the years such comfort and such security, that you will never withdraw your love from us, even though we make mistakes, we make bad choices, we go down the wrong street, we battle against sin in our life, we live in a world that seems so negative. God, you have not withdrawn your love from your people. You have loved us with an everlasting love. From eternity past, you have set your love upon us. You have called us to yourself. You have justified us. You have you are sanctifying us, and one day you will glorify us. Father, that's an unbreakable chain in the life of a believer. And the God who graciously gave his son, won't you, God, give to your people all things? Would you renew our affections for you, Lord? Would you allow us to remember that we love you not because we loved you first, but you loved us first? You took the initiative. You took the first step. We love you, God, because of who you are and what you have done. Would you allow this love to go deeper in our life, to become the foundation of our souls? Would you allow it, Lord, to be the anchor that holds us fast in the storms of life, that we are deeply loved? Would you allow, Lord, us to be expressions of this love, would you allow us to manifest this love to others? May we even ask, Lord, who is it that we wish to share this love with on this very day? Lord, as you were purposeful and intentional with your love, may our love be intentional toward others. 
May we genuinely be concerned about the well-being of others and fulfill what Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Thank you, God, that your love is inseparable, that the union is forever, that you have loved us with a steadfast, fierce, unbelievable love. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. I love that song for many reasons, but it speaks to the eternal security of the believer. That we are kept by the power of God. That God has set his love on us and God isn't going to change his mind. And it's well worth you to reflect and meditate on the fact that nothing shall ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You are his and he is yours. And that relationship you have with him will last forever. In eternity past, God set his heart upon you and God is going to carry it through to the fact when you're with him. We were down um, in Tennessee with uh, Jimmy and uh, Jimmy's married to Margaret and they've been trying to get pregnant and we learned when we were down there that Margaret is now expecting. So we're happy about that. Number seven grandchild's on the way. And then Jimmy was deployed. So he's going <laughs> to miss the pregnancy. But maybe when he comes back, he'll be ready to have a baby together. And you know, separation is such a hard thing, isn't it? When we're kind of cut off from somebody we love. So we're praying a lot for Margaret these days, the little one inside, and for Jimmy. And encourage you all also to pray for them as they go through the season of their life of being parted from each other, but still very much in love, very still very much married. And you may be facing right now a separation from somebody you love. You may feel a distance. And so I'd like to pray over you. Father in heaven, thank you for the nearness and the dearness of your love for us, the preciousness of this love, the comfort of this love, that we have been loved with an everlasting love. That God, you had us on your mind before you made anything else. And you were constantly interceding on our behalf, thinking of us and praying for us, applying the death of your son to our lives that we would die to our former life, applying the resurrection to our life that we would be raised to newness of life, that we would walk in your ways, Lord. And I pray over our body as we, in this life, we face separations, difficulties, and hardships, that, God, you would make your presence known to us. We would feel, God, experience your love. Help us to know this love, and when we, even when we don't feel it, and the circumstances in our life are so difficult, we're up against it, Lord. We're being tested. Our faith is really being tested. Help us to know that you really do love us and you really are for us and you're never against us. This we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you next week. We begin a new series called Chosen out of Romans chapter 9. Read ahead, Romans 9. We'll be there. <laughs>